Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 4 and verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's hear now the Word of God. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of the circumcision, to whose and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word to us this morning. Amen. We're relying upon God for His help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage we read from the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, as we focus our attention upon verse 5, but I'll read verses 4 through 6. Paul writes, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Or as we saw in the Greek in recent weeks, unto righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Here we see the Apostle Paul contrasting the notion of gaining righteousness and a right standing in the sight of God by our works 
as if we've earned it and God is indebted to give it to us as a wage, as a, as a, a reward that we have uh, earned. He contrasts that with the one who does not work. The one who finds a right standing with God. Righteousness before the courts of heaven. Who does not work to obtain it. The one who does not work, but believes. And he believes upon Him who justifies the un godly. In other words, like Abraham, he believes God. He believes the message of the Gospel proclaimed by God. He believes in the promise of righteousness accomplished by God the Son in human flesh. Jehovah our righteousness. He believes and receives God's righteousness by faith. He doesn't work for it, but he believes and therefore he receives it. As a gift of righteousness. We see that in the next chapter. We won't look at that now. But he receives it by faith as a gift from the God who justifies the ungodly. And so the sinner who receives righteousness before God, righteousness unto eternal life in heaven, is in the sight of God's justice at the moment of his justification ungodly. And He is, in the context of this transaction, this great exchange of justification whereby His sin is taken away by Christ who died for it on the cross, and the righteousness of Christ, His obedience and sacrifice on behalf of His people is imputed to this believer at that very moment. He is ungodly and He is not working in the context of that transaction. Him who does not work... The one who is ungodly. This is the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. That's what Paul is declaring here as scandalous and unsettling to many as it may be. He's already spent multiple chapters teaching us that by nature, All mankind, every man, woman, and child that's ever been born after our first parents, that all of us by nature are unrighteous and ungodly. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We make a God out of ourselves and even to the extent that in our natural, unregenerate condition, we involve ourselves in worship. Nevertheless, we do it as chapter 2 says of the Jews, hypocritically. We don't practice what we preach. We say one thing, we do another. We boast in hearing the law and having the law and refuting all these unbiblical worldviews of the Gentiles. But our hypocrisy, our inconsistency, drawing near to God with our lips, far from Him in terms of our heart religion, it's such that the name of God, chapter 2, verse 24, is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of that unregenerate condition even of the religious man or woman. Paul has proclaimed the reality of sin. And he also proclaimed the way in which God deals with sin. The way in which God has accomplished salvation from sin. We saw it 
uh, toward the end of chapter 3, that though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the people of God, the believing people of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus purchased redemption. That's what the word means. He purchased it. He earned it. It's His wage. He he offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin. And it is the labor of His soul. It is His wages. He's the one, if we want to speak in, in, in the... Uh, fullest sense of chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul speaks of the one who works and deserves his wages as debt. Jesus is the one, the only one that's ever fit that description and actually obtained it and attained it and accomplished it. Everyone other than Christ who tries to work his way to the wages of eternal life and gain righteousness as a debt, everyone descending from Adam having been corrupted by sin, burdened with guilt, fails. But Christ is the one who works. He's the one who has the wages of eternal life that He has accomplished and obtained and purchased as a debt, having merited these things. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is, to turn away God's wrath and obtain God's favor by His blood. How do we receive it? That's the question. And Paul says in verse 25 there, through faith. Through faith. So he's sowing the seeds as he's done earlier in this epistle, chapter 1, that not only has God accomplished redemption through Christ and obtained the righteousness of God that is to all and on all of God's people, but there's a way in which God's people receive it. How is it the case that the righteousness of God is to all and on all of God's people? God's elect. How? Through faith. Chapter 3, verse 25, the propitiation by His blood, through faith. Elsewhere He says that the righteousness of God is to all and on all who believe. So the question of how can a sinner come into the possession of the righteousness of God purchased by Christ? How can that righteousness be applied to us? How can we receive it? How can we gain a share in it? So that though it is the righteousness of God in Christ, yet it becomes our righteousness as that name of Christ in the Old Testament. Jehovah, our righteousness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we gain that righteousness of God? That's what he's dealing with in chapter 4. And he's saying there are many people among the unconverted Pharisaical Jews who say the way you come into a right standing with God is by your works. By your works. You think of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who came to the temple and said, God, I thank You that I'm not like all these other wicked people. I do this and I do that. And he lists moral works. He lists ceremonial works. Uh, The Pharisees, like the Roman Catholics today, love to lump all of these things together. Their morality, their moral superiority, haven't committed a, a deadly sin and haven't murdered anyone or committed adultery. And uh, on the other hand, I've been baptized and 
had the holy water sprinkled and all of these kinds of rites and rituals, many of which the the Word of God says absolutely nothing. But these people to whom Paul is speaking were much the same, you see. Uh, To him who works. If you're going to work for righteousness unto eternal life, you're going to have to earn it as wages. And we saw in a previous sermon that only Christ can do that. Only Christ has done that since the fall. Now, uh, Paul is here contrasting that failed method of justification in the sight of God with the justification that is offered to us through the Gospel. Verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted unto righteousness. And he goes on to explain what that phraseology means. Again, we've seen it previously. What does it mean that his faith is accounted unto righteousness? It means this in verse 6, that he's the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So his faith is not his righteousness. His faith is the instrument by which he receives the righteousness. His faith is unto righteousness. And in other words, God imputes righteousness to him apart from works. And it's by faith that he receives that imputation, that reckoning or accounting of Christ's righteousness to his account in the sight of Almighty God. Not by works, but by faith. And what we find in verse 5 is shocking. It should be shocking to us, even if we believe it, that when God justifies a sinner, He justifies the sinner as an ungodly sinner. You may remember in the Old Testament that God dwelt in the midst of His people. That God had a tabernacle raised up and eventually a temple where God would dwell. His holy presence in the midst of Israel above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and then you had the holy place of the temple or tabernacle, and then outside of that place of God's holy presence, you had two things. If you were a priest and you were coming to that temple to serve in it, first you would come to the altar of burnt sacrifice, the bronze, uh, well, the I can't remember if it was bronze or not, the basin was bronze, but in any event, the altar of sacrifice you'd come to that altar of sacrifice and the first thing that would happen is you would place your hands on the sacrificial animal and it would be slain and it would be offered as a burnt offering unto the Lord as a picture of the judicial work of Jesus Christ. Legally taking the sin of His people on Himself, bearing the penalty and punishment that they deserve as the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course we know that Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ rose again victoriously for our justification, showing that the sacrifice was accepted. But first you came to that sacrifice, that judicial, legal declaration that your sins had been taken away. And then you came to the bronze basin. This basin of water where the priest would come and wash and would be cleansed as a picture of sanctification, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
that everyone who's justified through the sacrifice of Christ judicially shall be morally transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, washed with water by the Word, by the Lord Jesus Christ, sanctified. And so when we come into worship, we come believing in what Christ did at the cross. We also come with clean hands and a pure heart in good conscience, uh, desiring holiness and walking in the Spirit. And that was what was required. But I want you to notice that the priest who signifies every Christian worshiper in the New Testament in some sense, the priest did not first go to the basin to wash before receiving atonement at the altar of sacrifice. He came to the altar of sacrifice, as it were, filthy and stained with defilement. And the justification that was set forth, though in a type and shadow at that altar, was a justification of the one who who was ungodly, who was filthy, whether we think ceremonially. The point is, that's the conveyed message of that Old Testament ritual. You came there and you had atonement, and then flowing out of that, you were cleansed at the basin of water. You had to be washed with the blood before you'd be washed with water by the Word, if you will. Washed by the Spirit. And so, the, the judicial work of salvation is fundamental and sets the tone then for the transformational moral aspect of salvation. That's what Paul's setting forth here. And what that means is that when the gospel comes to an unconverted sinner, perhaps that's you here this morning, that Jesus is not commanding and calling you to go cleanse yourself, to go wash yourself, to go clean yourself up and go, go to the Holy Spirit and get cleansed and go to the Word of God and, and be sanctified and then come back to this sacrificial altar and look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Absolutely not. First, you must come to the altar of sacrifice which has been ordained by Him who justifies the ungodly. Him who does not work, but who believes. Well, this passage, uh, shocking as it may seem to many, teaches the following doctrine. That God freely and exclusively justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work to contribute to his right standing before God, but simply believes. God freely and exclusively justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work to contribute to his right standing before God, but simply believes. Let's unpack this first. We're speaking of God justifying. Justifying. We, we sing in Psalm 4 of the God of our righteousness. The God who justifies. Here we're thinking, as we've already said, but it's important to clarify, of that judicial, legal declaration of God that a sinner is now righteous in the sight of the throne of heavenly justice. We're thinking of that legal declaration of righteousness that is declared over a sinner at conversion. When that sinner believes the promise of the Gospel and receives Christ with His perfect righteousness, Christ's righteousness is accounted, reckoned, imputed to the account of that believer. 
And God the Father declares that believer righteous. In other words, He declares that that believer has a right standing before His own throne of justice. And that is an unchangeable, irrevocable declaration that will be openly acknowledged and declared at the last day. But it occurs fundamentally at conversion we gain a right standing with God, a judicial status of righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. We are not speaking, when we speak of justification, of God making us just. You see, in the Roman Catholic Latin translation of the Bible, um, the Vulgate, they utilized a, a word in Latin to translate the Greek word here for justification. And the word in Latin has the emphasis of making someone righteous. And a lot of this accounts for the confusion within the Roman Catholic Church uh, that they've actually substituted the biblical definition of justification as a legal declaration that speaks to one's standing before the throne as opposed to a transformation, a moral transformation, a spiritual regeneration, sanctification, conformity of our human nature to the holiness and image of God. Uh, They've confused this. And of course, it's been pointed out countless times to them, so they should know better. But the fact of the matter is that justification used by Paul and throughout the New Testament does not convey the idea of making someone righteous or spiritually transforming them into an organic uh, righteous lifestyle, but rather it's a legal declaration of righteousness. And you may say, well, what about Romans 5? Where at the tail end there, Paul says that through Christ as the second Adam, we have been made righteous. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And yet the word made there is actually the Greek word constituted. Constituted. Righteous. So, the word made fits that, but it's a lot broader than the actual Greek word. So, justification does not refer to a moral transformation. It's a legal declaration of righteousness. And in this case, the righteousness of another, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because secondly, we find that God justifies the ungodly sinner. The person being justified is not righteous in himself, but he is righteous by imputation. The righteousness of the believer that clothes him in the sight of God. It's like Adam and Eve. It's not their uh, nakedness as if that itself uh, were adequate. It's not even their fig leaves of good works as we can see the, the, the imagery there biblically. But it's God sacrificing an animal, taking the skin, and clothing them in that blood-bought covering. The robe of righteousness and of salvation. The, the, The one who's justified is not righteous in himself, but he has an alien righteousness. A righteousness that was accomplished outside of him. A righteousness of God that God has accomplished through the person of His Son, the God-man mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it belongs to that justified believer 
through legal union or representation. In the same way that Romans 5 says that Adam sinned and we all sinned and fell. In Adam, in the same sense, Christ accomplished the work of redemption. He fulfilled all righteousness. And because He is the legal representative of all believers, just as Adam's the legal representative of all mankind and we all receive His guilt, in the same way, Jesus is the legal representative of all of His people, of all His believing people throughout the ages, of all His elect, and through legal union with Christ, not the union with Christ in which Christ comes to dwell in my heart by faith. It's not as though Jesus comes experientially into my life and and sets up shop in me as His holy temple and He brings righteousness with me and works it into my nature to sanctify me in this beautiful relationship. No, that's not the union with Christ that we're talking about when we say justification is grounded in union with Christ. We mean that Jesus is our covenantal representative and that we have a legal union. He is our substitute, our representative. What He has done is legally imputed to us as His believing people. It is the ungodly sinner who is justified. And if you think about the illustration of this in the book of Zechariah, where you have Joshua the high priest standing before God with Satan, the accuser of the brethren at his right hand. He's standing before the angel of the covenant And the angel of the covenant sees him in his filthy garments, in his ungodliness, in his irreverence, in his lack of holiness before God, in his sin, in his guilt, in his shame, in his defilement, in his failure to keep the commandments of God even as a representative of all God's people at that time. Here's Joshua the high priest. He's clothed in filthy garments. And the angel of the covenant says to to the people around him, take off the filthy garments and put on clean clothes. Cover him, as it were, in the garments of salvation and of righteousness. That's justification. There's some sense in which you have to be ungodly for the whole thing to work anyway. Because it's assumed the only one who would need this justification as it's defined here as the removal of our sin and the acceptance of God through the imputation of righteousness. You you come in an ungodly way in the same sense that uh, it, it doesn't make sense to take a bath if you're not filthy. You see, you come in your filthy garments. You come in your defilement and in your guilt And through justification, you're cleansed. All of the guilt and sin and defilement legally, judicially is cleansed away, blotted out like a thick cloud, and you're clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. It's an ungodly sinner that is justified at that very moment. It's an ungodly sinner who does not work. Now this sounds scandalous, but it's true. And anyone who has to qualify this to death doesn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. Uh, The ungodly sinner who with respect to his justification does not work to contribute even an ounce, even a fraction of a percentage to his right standing with God. Now it's clear that the one who is justified through faith coming to the sacrificial altar of the cross of Christ will then proceed 
to the bronze basin and be washed and cleansed through sanctification and will proceed into an intimate relationship with God in His holy house. There's no question about that. That the truly justified believer will work out his own salvation with fear and trembling as God works within him. There's no question that true saving faith in terms of sanctification works by love. No question about that. There's no question, James 1, that believers in their sanctification are blessed in the doing. Why? Because it, it really is produced by the doing of God. Willing and working within us to will and do for His good pleasure. And, and it's a privilege to be able to actively labor and work in our sanctification. And Paul's going to get to that in chapter 6 and beyond. But with respect to justification, understand the person who comes to God to be justified is the ungodly sinner who contributes nothing. In fact, it's in spite of his works. With the old uh, great Scottish minister we of the 17th century, uh, whose name escapes me, it was David Dixon or James Durham, I can't remember, but on his deathbed, he said that he cast all of his good works as well as his sinful works before the cross of Christ, uh, desiring that his justification exclusively by the vicarious substitutionary work of Christ would give him that acceptance with God. It's in spite of our works, which in terms of God's throne of justice, strictly speaking, are dung, they're filthy rags, they're unacceptable to God apart from that sacrificial altar. Now, in Christ, as a justified saint, sanctification is a work of God. Our works, our good works, are acceptable in God's sight but it's grounded in the judicial act of sanctification or justification. So it's the ungodly sinner who does not work. In fact, uh, we're told here, or we're told in uh, Galatians chapter 3 from the Apostle Paul, verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law, these are the Romans 4 verse 4 people who are trying to be justified as wages, or they're trying to be justified in some way conditioned upon their works, injecting works into the reception of righteousness through, through Christ. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Or in other words, the just by faith shall have life. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So it's the person not who's seeking to contribute anything to his justification that's that's, uh, justified, but rather the one who renounces all contribution. As Paul says, Philippians 3, verse 3, he speaks of himself and of true believers. He says, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Not even an ounce of contribution to our right standing with God. The ungodly sinner who does not work, but who simply believes. Now there are people who want to say, well, faith is a work, you see, because God commands us to believe, and if we believe then we have obeyed that command. 
and therefore it's the obedience of faith. And faith is a virtue. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is a spiritual grace. Faith is called the most holy faith. Precious faith. Obedient faith. Penitent faith. All of these kinds of things. Faith is exalted as that which works by love. It's a working faith. It's a living faith. And the fact of the matter is that all of those things are true, but they have nothing to do with faith's role in justification. In terms of justification, faith or receiving Christ's righteousness by faith is contrasted with all works. And so the aspect of faith that Paul is saying is central to justification can't be the aspect of faith that involves work. It can't be the, act of, uh, the aspect of faith that is most precious and most holy and obedient and penitent. It can't be that aspect of faith because he says that it's contrasted with the one who works. You have the one who works and the one who does not work is the one who believes. Now, if faith is a work, that is an utter contradiction. And for people that are inclined toward contradiction in their theology, perhaps that's not an objection. But God is the God of truth, and no lie is of the truth. We read, we interpret the clear teaching here that faith in its role in justification is flatly contrasted with works of any kind whatsoever. Think about if somebody set before you a bowl of ice cream. Uh, I would say, you know, children, but I know adults like ice cream too, so this is for everybody. But somebody freely set before you a bowl of ice cream and they gave you a spoon. And that spoon was made of pure gold. Now, They said, here's the ice cream. All you need to do is eat it. And here's the instrument by which you're going to get that ice cream into your mouth. Does it matter that the spoon is golden? Is that golden spoon, insofar as it it is used as an instrument in eating the ice cream from the bowl, does the, the property of gold in the spoon have any impact on the utility of that spoon in that process of eating the ice cream? And the answer is no. In fact, you could be blindfolded and they give you a golden spoon or a silver spoon or a stainless steel spoon. It would not matter that the spoon is silver or gold or stainless steel because in its capacity as an instrument to get the ice cream from the bowl into your mouth, all that matters is that it is a spoon. And so you could, you could go on and on till, till we're all blue in the face talking about how much that spoon is worth. It's gold and it's this and it's that, all these properties. But the point is, in this particular instance of eating ice cream from the bowl, the instrumentality of the spoon is not impacted at all by the gold of which the spoon uh, is made. And so it is with our precious, most holy, obedient, penitent, virtuous, faith because the fact is none of those properties or aspects have any role in justification it is simply saving faith justifying faith is simply an empty hand receiving the fullness of Christ's righteousness that's the only utility or instrumentality that saving faith has in justification 
And of course, saving faith has a role in all kinds of other aspects to the Christian life, and rightly so. Let's emphasize those things in their own time and place. But here, it is not that aspect of faith that has anything to do with justification. Listen to Larger Catechism 73. How doth faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Answer. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God not because of those other graces which do always accompany it or of good works that are the fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to Him for His justification, but only as it is an instrument by which He receiveth and applieth Christ and His righteousness. Okay? As we're going to see, unfortunately, there's some people that are confused about this and confusing many of God's people concerning this point. Uh, But the problem begins that when people who claim to be subscribers to the Westminster Standards don't read their own standards and realize that so many, if not all, of the objections and confusing observations that people are now pointing out have already been answered. They've already been addressed. And the larger catechism smelled it coming, that someone was going to come along and say, well, you see, faith is a grace, it's a virtue, and it's accompanied by all the graces of the regeneration that produces faith. And so, faith is precious, faith is holy, faith is obedient, faith is penitent, faith works by love. And they saw that, they smelled that rat in the woodpile from a mile away, and they said, no, And they cite this text in in these portions of of the standards. They cite our text. It's not from any of those things. It's the the sinner who is viewed as ungodly, who is viewed as not working at all or contributing anything, even by way of his most holy faith in his justification. So again, not because of those other graces which do always accompany faith, or of good works that are the fruits of faith, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as that faith is an instrument by which the sinner receiveth and applieth Christ and his righteousness. An empty hand receiving the fullness of Christ's righteousness. And it is exclusively the case. God exclusively justifies the ungodly sinner who doesn't work to contribute to his right standing before God. It is exclusive. It's it's only the person who renounces all contribution of works. It's the one who does not work, who has no confidence in the flesh, who renounces all self-righteousness. And my friends, this is the Gospel. This is the Gospel Paul preached. This is the Gospel the Apostles proclaimed. This is the Gospel that's set forth from Genesis to Revelation. We have one Lord, one faith, one Gospel. And there are people today who are saying, well, you can fudge on this point. You can fudge and confuse the matter when it comes to the ungodliness in which the sinner is viewed by God at the moment of his or her justification. And at this point, you have Doug Wilson entering the fray. Doug Wilson, who argues that because regeneration produces faith... Now listen, this is somewhat complex, but really... It's not. 
He says, because regeneration, the new birth, being taken out of darkness into light, a new nature, that regeneration produces faith. And we would agree with that. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God nor enter it. Because regeneration precedes faith, and faith is the instrument of receiving Christ's righteousness in justification, he says, therefore, the moral transformation comes first, and to some extent, though he is, as usual, ambiguous and unclear, uh, he, he says in some sense that moral transformation coming before seems to imply that perhaps it in some sense forms the basis of that justification. And for some background in this, for some background in this, I, I want to remind you of what the, the Roman Catholic teaching is on this point, because Wilson's always trying to uh, blur the lines between Romanism and the true biblical faith. Uh, Roman Catholicism teaches that, as I mentioned already, that in justification, we are made righteous and therefore declared righteous. So they would say, well, God's not going to declare an ungodly person to be righteous. That's a legal fiction. That's a lie. Okay? But through justification, Catechism of the Catholic Church, number Uh, 1989 justification is not only the remission of sins but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man citing the council of trent Uh, catechism number 1991 justification is at the same time the acceptance of god's righteousness through faith in jesus christ sounds really good but the devil's in the details It goes on, righteousness or justice here means the rectitude of divine love. With justification, hope, uh, sorry, faith, hope, and charity are poured into our hearts and obedience to the divine will is granted us, end quote. So justification is God infusing righteousness, faith, hope, love into your heart, and you're justified by faith only in the sense that God looks at you having had all of these righteous virtues infused into your nature, including faith, and he says, wow, this person believes. That's virtuous. Righteous. Declaration of righteousness on the basis of the transformation of your nature in your regeneration, which they link with justification. Catechism 1995. That's not a year, it's a number. Quote, The Holy Spirit is the master of the interior life. By giving birth to the inner man, justification entails the sanctification of his whole being. So it's not legal and judicial. It's sort of legal and judicial, grounded in a change in your nature. The fact that you've been sanctified through regeneration, God therefore declares you righteous. And uh, Catechism number 1992, quote, Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered Himself on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Sounds beautiful, but the devil's in the details, picking up right there. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith, 
It conforms us to the righteousness of God. Notice it's not the righteousness of God accomplished by Christ, legally accounted unto the ungodly believing sinner, but rather, notice, quote, it conforms us to the righteousness of God. In other words, we're morally transformed to be like God through the communicable attribute of righteousness. Uh, The righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of His mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. Again, citing the Council of Trent. So Rome is saying your justification is not grounded solely in the judicial work of Christ, His obedience and sacrifice, His righteousness imputed to you by faith, legally reckoned by God. No. God declares you righteous partly on account of something He does to make you righteous in yourself. In other words, Christ died not to save you from your sins, but to enable you to save yourself. Because, of course, they believe once God justifies you and makes you righteous, you can lose that through a mortal sin. And then, you know, at at that point, again, all bets are off and you have to come back through the sacraments. But the point is that this is Roman Catholic teaching. This is why the Roman Catholic Church is regarded confessionally as antichrist. This is why the Roman Catholic Church is a false church that proclaims a false gospel, so on and so forth. Um, They are anathema, according to Galatians chapter 1. They've added to the doctrine of justification. Now, Doug Wilson is always seeking to blur the lines, if you follow his teachings. Blurring the lines to say, well, maybe maybe somebody who holds to a Roman Catholic doctrine of justification isn't all that bad because after all, doesn't it throw a monkey wrench into the, the, the whole works here, no pun intended, to say that regeneration precedes faith and justification. And regeneration is God's way of producing justifying faith, which is the instrument of receiving Christ's righteousness. And he sums it all up by saying this quote, this is Doug Wilson, at the end of the day, This means infused righteousness as the instrument of imputed righteousness. So because regeneration produces faith, which then that faith is the instrument of receiving Christ's righteousness, he says, therefore, this means that infused righteousness in regeneration is the instrument of imputed righteousness. Now, This contradicts, first of all, everything we've seen in our text, that when a sinner is justified, he or she is justified as an ungodly sinner who does not work. But it also contradicts plain reason. It contradicts plain reason. Think of it this way. Uh, I begat my firstborn son. My firstborn son can strike out high school hitters with a curveball, okay? Think about that. I begat my firstborn son, and he can do this. In this case, he, he, ha- he can throw a curveball, a nasty curveball. Okay? Does that mean that I can throw a nasty curveball? No, it does not. No, it does not. The fact that I begat my oldest son and that he can throw a curveball does not mean that I can throw a curveball. And if you know anything about my pitching, you know that as a fact. It's, it's ridiculous. To say that regeneration produces faith and faith receives the righteousness of Christ, therefore, 
Righteousness infused at regeneration is the instrument of receiving righteousness. That is patently illogical. Uh, in, in logic, you have the, the, trans, the, the transitive law of identity that A equals B, therefore B equals C, but that does not apply to cause and effect. A causes B, B causes C, therefore A causes C. That's not actually the case. There are many ways we could illustrate that, but my uh, failed pitching career is the best one I could think of. Um, regeneration is, is not the instrument of justification. Uh, the fact that regeneration precedes faith really could be compared to the warden of a prison releasing a prisoner so that that prisoner can go out to the front lawn of the correctional facility and receive a pardon from the governor. So the governor has informed the prison warden that this prisoner is going to be pardoned and therefore the warden allows the prisoner to leave the prison to receive that declaration, to receive that pardon on the front lawn of the correctional facility from the governor. In other words, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us while we were yet enemies of God. The judicial work of Christ is towards sinners as ungodly sinners who can't save themselves. Regeneration precedes justifying faith simply to let the sinner out of the prison house of sin and unbelief so that he can go receive his pardon on the front lawn. And quite frankly, regeneration and faith only have a logical relationship of sequence. Uh, when someone is effectually called by the Word and Spirit of Christ, regeneration and faith are virtually instantaneous. It's simply a causal sequence where we say, well, apart from regeneration, you wouldn't be able to believe. You'd be lost in your depraved unbelief. So there's really no gap in time or sequence in chronological terms. Uh, regeneration and faith are virtually instantaneous from a chronological standpoint. Now, the reason Wilson says this is, is in order to justify the following statement. He says, quote, because justification by faith alone is true, it is possible for someone who is screwed up on justification, this is Wilson, it is possible for someone who is screwed up on justification in his theology to be actually saved, end quote. So if you recall when we pivoted over to Doug Wilson, my point that I'm making here is that God exclusively justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work to contribute to his justification. Okay, but Wilson is saying someone who is trying to contribute to their justification because they believe the lies of the Roman Catholic Church, they can still be justified. Uh, they're working for wages They've embraced a system that adds to the gospel, like the false teachers in Galatia, whom Paul says are anathema. He says to the Galatians who believe that nonsense, you've embraced another gospel, and you've fallen from grace, and so on and so forth. But, Doug Wilson says, well, you're justified by faith, not by doctrinal knowledge. Now, it is true that simply having an intellectual doctrinal knowledge of the doctrine of justification does not justify you, but it is also true that true justifying faith includes the knowledge of this doctrine. 
faith historically is defined as knowledge, assent, and trust. You can go to uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. And there, when it speaks of justification by faith in Christ, it actually uses the word knowledge. By His knowledge, or the knowledge of Him, my righteous servant shall justify many. So it doesn't even use the word faith. Because knowledge is a constituent part of saving faith. It's a part for the whole. The knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of who He is, what He's done, and how to be saved through Him, the knowledge of Christ in the Gospel is the means by which the suffering servant justifies many. If you do not have the knowledge of justification by faith alone, if you reject it, if you, don't under, if, if, you, if you look at it and you turn a blind eye, you ignore it, you reject it. If you don't have this knowledge, you do not have justifying faith. Now, there are extraordinary cases, infants in the womb and so on and so forth. But everyone here today listening to me, comprehending what I'm saying, you need to renounce all contribution to your justification. If you are wrong on this doctrine, it is a damnable error and heresy. It is anathema. It is a curse, Galatians 3.10. This is essential knowledge to, to a right understanding of the Gospel and to true saving faith. And we need to be very leery. We need to be very concerned about someone like Doug Wilson saying otherwise. That's leading souls to hell. Romans 10 verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Who are the people that Paul says are unsaved that need to be saved? He goes on, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you're ignorant of this doctrine of justification, you're ignorant of God's righteousness, you're ignorant, you're you're not submitting to God's righteousness. You're not coming to God through Christ as an ungodly sinner, renouncing all contribution of your own, and clinging to what Christ has done for you, then you are damned. And that is a damnable ignorance. It's a damnable disobedience to the Gospel. This is essential to saving faith. And it's frightening that anyone who claims to be a minister of the Gospel would say otherwise. Utterly astonishing. And uh, briefly, I know we've run out of time, but after saying all this, uh, we have to say one more thing, and that is that God freely justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work but believes. He freely does it. Listen, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save the ungodly. If you're feeling guilty this morning, listen, it may be the case that this week, this morning, there's something in your life where you feel uneasy coming into this worship service, You feel guilt. You feel shame. You feel something burdening your conscience. Understand that may be the best gift God ever gave to you. 
Because this gospel is not for the righteous as they perceive themselves. It is for the ungodly. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to save those who are incapable of working in any kind of effective way to gain a right standing with God. He came to you in your sinful, evil, paralysis, your shame, your embarrassment at the thoughts and intents of your heart, at the stupid, sinful things you've said, at, at the anger, at the, at the lust, at the lack of self-control. He's come into your life and you're convicted of sin and you need to be reminded that before you proceed to be cleansed at the basin, you need to come to the altar. You need to come to the altar. Friends, we have an altar. We have Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Crucified not for the righteous, but God demonstrates His love in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we are yet sinners, I'm not saying that we're unregenerate technically, theologically at the moment of our justification, but in reality, the biblical message is that while we were yet sinners, Christ justifies us. He takes away the filthy garments. He takes away the shame. He takes away the fig leaves of, of our pathetic attempt to be right with Him in our own way. And He clothes us in the righteous garments of Christ's righteousness. Come. Come in your ungodliness. Come in your filthiness. Like the prodigal son, he didn't take a bath before he came home from the the foreign land, from working in the pigsty. And it says the father saw him a long way off. No doubt he smelled him a long way off. He was covered in pig slop, no doubt. And the father embraced him. And yes, later on the servants removed the filthy clothes and cleansed him and gave him garments. But the father fell on his neck, wept and kissed him in his ungodliness, in his foolishness, in his shame. Jesus came to Zacchaeus. Jesus came to Matthew the tax collector. And He saved them. And then He cleansed them. But He saved them. He justified them through faith. He came, as it were, to the publican outside at a distance at the temple. God, be merciful to me. The regenerate man with infused righteousness. Absolutely not. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The Lord Jesus in Acts 16 came to Philippi and He saved the moral, religious, unbeliever Lydia, but He also saved the demon-possessed slave girl. He saved the, the jailer who had smitten and smited and persecuted the, the, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the message to every single one of them was the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. Believe. Don't work. Don't labor. Don't try to bear the burden of guilt yourself. Come to the altar. Unburden yourself. Be cleansed with the precious blood of Christ and clothed in His perfection. Let's pray. O Lord God, what glorious truths You have revealed to us. We pray that by Your Spirit we would be humbled in the dust. That we would confess ourselves to be the chiefs of sinners, the least of all the saints, and that we would receive that great inheritance of righteousness 
through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Work faith in the hearts of each person here. And stir up that faith that we may enjoy the full blessedness of Him whose sins are covered and whose transgressions are forgiven. We pray in His name. Amen.